Welcome to episode 32 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Sademan, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about returning to campus, Trump losing support with the military, Sudan's terrorism designation, and Navalny's poisoning. Our feature interview is with Thomas Junot from the University of Ottawa and Philippe Lagasse from Carleton. At the very end, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, so apparently you were on the high seas of the St. Lawrence River. How did that go? Yes, you're right. I was on a houseboat Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's funny because it's basically like an RV on water. <laughs> and uh, we toured the Thousand Islands that way, which was a nice way to do it because you get to hop on and off uh, different islands that are part of the Thousand Islands National Park. It was only a long weekend. We went uh, out for three days, but it was really relaxing. When I compare this to some of the uh, other trips I, I took this summer, like the trip to Gaspésie, this time I actually had time to sit in the sun and read without having to move from one place to the next or chasing after the boys. So my kids were perfectly happy with their fishing rods. They didn't catch anything, but they were quiet and focused for hours. And I was just happy uh, reading by their side and it was really relaxing. So I do hope that they can channel that focus as they return to class full time <laughs> next week because they are definitely out of practice. But for us this week, it's really a, a return to campus. Have you been preparing for this return to campus at Carleton? I'm assuming most of your preparation is done from your home office, but I'm sure you're getting all kinds of messages from the university. Yes, uh, we start next week. We'll have orientation and things like that. My first class is until the 14th, thanks to Labor Day. Uh, so I've put more time into preparing my uh, undergraduate class. I have 110 students or so. I put more time in that class this summer than I think I've done in course prep for the previous 10 or 20 summers. Not just doing the PowerPoint slides, but crafting videos where I, I present the material with slides being shown and me talking through them, interviewing some scholars for some areas that provide a different perspective on things. So I, I really appreciate the generosity of the scholars I talked to. In one of them, I, I talked to Jenna Stein asking her perspectives on how to do, kind of think about cognitive psychology and how, how one applies it to IR, because that's where she made her name. And in exchange, she asked me to read a piece on Canada and Iraq for her clients. So I told her what her about and that stuff. So a lot of quid pro quos going on around here, a lot of reciprocity. As I've mentioned before, I think my daughter is doing the editing of these, of these videos because she is currently furloughed. I learned a dangerous lesson today, which is that it's not that hard to insert pictures and videos into the video into the videos I've already recorded. And so I've started searching for fun stuff to, to throw in to illustrate some of the historical examples I throw. Because when I lecture, I kind of have the basic concepts nailed down. And then I throw in examples that come to mind that uh, illustrate the things. And so now I need to go back and have some of those illustrations. So I started talking about the dairy cartel. 
So I, I started having to find some uh, images of, of uh, the supply management and, and what it does to Canada. It's been fun. Preparation's nearly done. I had our meetings with our TAs. I sent out a survey to my students to ask them about their equipment. So that way I know what to expect, what time zones they're in. So I can figure out how the live things will go. Our class, the way we're doing it, is that most of the stuff will be asynchronous. That is, they can watch it whenever they want, except for the very first class, the very last class, and then the discussion sections, the, set, the tutorials, sessions, whatever people call them. TAs, we're running those live. And so I wanted to find out how many people we have in Australia or in India that would pose major challenges due to time zone problems. I have a question for you about preparing your online lectures and, and preparing for online delivery. What's your attitude when it comes to humor? And can you convey <laughs> that efficiently or compellingly, I should say, in the online format? You'll have to ask my students that because um, <laughs> I'll try. I have always injected humor in my classes, mostly in, improvisational. I, I usually don't set up jokes ahead of time. Uh -huh. uh, it just kind of depends how things are flowing. And, I, and it's in reaction to students as well. Yeah, definitely. And since we last spoke, uh, the other thing that was noteworthy, I suppose, were the uh, Democratic and Republican National Convention. We're going to talk about uh, Trump in a second, but uh, it was difficult uh, to ignore the gatherings and the Rose Garden and the absence of physical distancing there, too. And of course, I'm leaving aside some of the more memorable performances, uh, like Kimberly Guilfoyle screaming at the camera. Uh, that's still haunting my dreams, to be honest. <laughs> well, one of the striking things from a civil mill perspective, and we're going to get into that with uh, the story about the U.S. military as the use of Trump, is that one of the controversies four years ago was the prominent role of American generals, retired generals giving keynote speeches. And so on the one hand, you had, I think it was General Allen speaking out on behalf of Hillary Clinton. On the other hand, you had General Mike Flynn speaking out on behalf of Donald Trump. And so in the conventions, you had a series of efforts for each candidate to try to get as many military officers around them to make them appear to be the best defender of American national interests. And there's a big debate at the time about how this is politicizing the military. And I guess one of the upsides of having these conventions be entire, almost entirely online and being during the middle of a pandemic is that there wasn't really much of that this time around. I, don't, I can't remember any really prominent speakers who were recently retired generals. Uh, the big controversy for the Trump convention, for the Republican National Convention, was that they did feature the military in some ways that were problematic. His speech featured uh, him walking through these doors that were held open by U.S. Marines. So that put the Marines sort of in the middle of a political ad, and people had problems with that. So that was the big violation of civ mill norms. There were other violations, the violations of the Hatch Act, mm -hmm. that it is illegal for American policymakers to use federal property for campaign efforts, and it's illegal for people in their official capacity as Secretary of X, Y, or Z to campaign. And that was violated left, right, and center by Trump and his people having Pompeo give a speech as Secretary of State to the convention from Israel was a major violation of, of, of the law. And so we'll see what happens with that. The problem, of course, is that the Department of Justice is currently the, the essentially acting as the lawyer for Donald Trump as opposed to being uh, looking out for what are violations of the law. So there may not 
be that much made of it. There may not actually be ramifications of it. All these things are impeachable, but we've seen how impeachment goes. And we wanted to discuss the Military Times poll that shows mm -hmm. President Trump steadily losing support among military members since his election. Just for context, the Military Times surveyed over 1,000 active duty troops in July and August, and close to half of the respondents held unfavorable opinions of Trump. And we might expect favorable opinions of Trump within the military because Republicans are overrepresented compared to Democrats. But you can also add to that the substantial increase in the defense budget we've seen with Trump and maybe calls on allies to do more for various different reasons. It might seem as though Trump is a big advocate of the military and that this might pay off in terms of the military supporting Trump, but that's not the case. At least that's not what the survey results indicate. So I guess for our discussion, we can bounce around ideas for why the military turned on Trump. Well, it's interesting that the shift happened really in 2018, not recently. It stabilized. The numbers are pretty stable from 2019 to 2020. But I think a couple things matter. I think the attacks on the allies and the burden sharing problem is actually, I don't think, a popular issue within the military. Yes, we want the allies to spend more, but the average troop or average officer in the military has a deeper appreciation of the value of, of allies. They may get frustrated when allies don't show up or don't do as much as we would like because of restrictions that I documented in a, a book six years ago. But they really appreciate allies. They don't want to be doing things by themselves. And so when the president attacks NATO, that I don't think plays well in the, in the, amongst the troops. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that Trump has gone back and forth on a variety of issues. And so the military is uncertain about where he stands. So remember, it was this year, early this year, before the pandemic struck North America, that in the aftermath of the airstrike on Soleimani in, in Iraq, and then there was a shooting down of a drone, uh, there was an attack that was launched against Iran that was called back to the last minute. And so by flipping back and forth on that issue, I think the military, the people in the military worried about their commander in chief. I also think that this might be that Donald Trump who's interfered in military justice by pardoning war criminals I, I think that that matters a lot because usually presidents stay out of those matters and let the, the military justice system play out. And I don't think that most soldiers and most officers really want to be around war criminals because they themselves will then be put in difficult positions of, of either legitimizing and supporting a war criminal or trying to confront one on a battlefield. And neither one is, a, is something that they want to deal with. And so I think that might be a major issue that that is something that's happened over the past couple of years that could be causing Trump to be less popular. What are your, your thoughts on this, Seth? When I look at this, this steady decline in support for Trump from, from military personnel, I think back to Trump's promise drawdown from places like Iraq and Afghanistan. But the fact that those withdrawals have been rather hasty and uncoordinated with allies, I'm sure that's not a comfortable position to be in when you're when you're deployed. Perhaps the best example of this has been the, the abandonment of uh, YPG fighters in northern Syria, units that had fought alongside the U.S. military as partners to combat ISIS. 
So I can see over time a number of, of sore points that might create friction for, for that relationship between military personnel and this particular administration. On this podcast, we also talked about Trump dismissing the reports about Russian bounties for Afghan fighters killing American soldiers in Afghanistan. That could also contribute to unfavorable views of the president. But I also think back to this spring and maybe the most controversial aspect of, of Trump's relationship with militaries is on the home front. Trump wanted to call on the military, federal troops, not just the National Guard, to deal with civil unrest following the protests. And this is a proposition that active duty military personnel seem to be deeply uncomfortable with and that prompted former generals to speak out against the president. But those are all recent events. And I, and I think, as you point out, we're looking at a steady decline over time, not just this past year. I also think that we need to look to non-military explanations because it's true that members of the armed forces will pay close attention to these events, but like the general population, they might be turned off by Trump's handling of COVID or there might be worries about economic recovery and so on. So we don't want to you know, just think that the, the military will vote on the basis of, of defense issues. But I think like every other citizen in, in the United States, uh, their interests are broad ranging. Yeah, I think, I think that raises a good point that there's things going on elsewhere. And so one of the things you see in the table, uh, we'll, we'll have this article put on the show notes, is that there's a plateau of unfavorable where it sort of hits a, a basically 50% for the past couple of years. But the the favorability drops, continues to drop pretty steadily. I think the politicization of the military, we've mentioned a few ways that's been playing out. I think that's been a fairly steady drumbeat for the past four years. Trump wanted to have his parade in DC. Trump has uh, had political speeches when he's appeared in military bases. And I do think that's been very uncomfortable for the military because they don't want to be involved in politics. This is one of the strongest norms in the US military is they want to stay out of politics. And when we have debates and discussions about those things in the, among civil military relations scholars, in the past, it's been questions about when the military step outside its, its boundaries and, and become political or, or voicing things too much. But what we've seen for the past four years, there have been much, many more violations on the civilian side of the norms of civil military relations. And so I think that's probably making them quite uncomfortable. Uh, and I do think they've probably been uncomfortable in the start because Trump said in the aftermath of a failed raid on Yemen, January of 2017, when he, just after he started, that don't blame me, blame my generals. And I think that's one thing that if you talk to any military officer, they want the buck to stop uh, at the top. And if the president or the prime minister or the secretary of defense, minister of defense, the chief of defense staff, the chairman, whoever it is, if they don't take responsibility for what's going on, then that's something that is quite disturbing to everybody down the chain of command. So I think that is something that's been fairly consistent. And I think that has weighed more and more heavily as time has gone on. And since we're touching on themes of, of foreign and defense policy here uh, in this discussion on, on the Military Times survey results, should we turn to the question that we had from listeners? There was a question that referred to a U.S. proposal that offers the removal of Sudan from the list of states that sponsor terrorism. But in exchange, Sudan would have to pay $330 million in compensation to U.S. victims of Al-Qaeda. So leading question alert. <laughs> Is it fair to further burden a poverty and war-stricken African country with this kind of quid pro quo, knowing that this administration is no stranger to quid pro quos? 
uh, or extortion. I mean, this is really extortion. The reality is that Sudan has been under significant political change for several years. And so the people who were responsible for providing, I'm trying to find, find the word, right word, solace, headquarters, whatever you want to put it for Al-Qaeda, those folks are long gone. And so to have a fragile new country, essentially a new regime, be paying the price for something that happened in the 1990s seems not just unfair, but unwise. Wouldn't the United States want Sudan to become a stable country so that it no longer becomes a base for terrorism? So that's my take on it. Well, another question is how this will play out in other contexts. Who else will the Trump administration turn to with compensation claims? Also, Sudan will find it hard to gain leverage in its negotiations with the United States over this issue since it has been cut off from sources of international financial aid since being put on the list in the early 1990s. So after Bashir's ousting, the country is desperate to access this aid. So the U.S. definitely has the stronger hand. At the same time, after what the U.S. did to Iran with the nuclear deal, you, do you believe that the agreement would be honored? Or that even after <laughs> paying this large sum of money, Sudan couldn't swiftly be put back on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. So there are a number of considerations here at play. Obviously, this looks like a rotten deal. It is a rotten deal and has lots of nasty uh, ramifications. But I, I do appreciate the question being posed to us by, by a listener. And, and the question was, should citizens have to pay compensation for terrorism? And I think that we're both in agreement in saying no. Well, certainly not in this case. Uh, I think that if it's a country that sponsors terrorism, then one could think about ways to have them, that, that government pay compensation. So I think that in general, that idea is okay. But in this, print, in this particular case, it's about selling U.S. foreign policy for money. That doesn't seem to make sense to me, both because of what it does for Sudan, but also what it messages sends to the rest of the world, that if you want to get on or off this list, you just don't have to pay the Trump administration enough money. Uh, which probably explains why Saudi Arabia isn't on that list to begin with. Uh, so it's, it's not just a Trump thing. It's an American thing about letting Saudi Arabia go for its support of terrorism. The challenges of trying to penalize the government of Pakistan for its support of terrorism. But the, in this case, it just doesn't make any sense, really. Uh, it's bad for the region. It's bad for the country. It's making people pay for, for policies from long ago. It's an abuse of power. Okay, well, maybe <laughs> abuse of power is a, is a good segue to, to turn to the third topic of the day, and that's uh, the Navalny story. And we can, we can talk about Russia more broadly, but I think this story is interesting not only because Navalny himself is interesting as an individual, he's the charismatic opponent of the Kremlin and has consistently defied Putin. He's done so despite threats, arrests, constant surveillance and now, you know, poisoning. But uh, this story is, is interesting beyond Navalny, the individual, because more broadly, I think it's another instance where the world must take a stand to defend human rights without U.S. pressure. In this case, it's Germany that has stepped up to the plate by giving Navalny asylum and, and medical help. France offered similar help, and uh, we've been hearing calls for an investigation from various different countries ever since Navalny became ill on that plane on, on August 20th. So just maybe to, to recap the, the chronology. So 
Mr. Navalny was visiting Siberia and uh, upon boarding his plane, he became violently sick. And that was on, on August 20th. He was uh, treated in Russian hospitals and then sent for medical care in Germany, despite attempts to keep him in Russia. Doctors in Germany then said he was poisoned. While we're taping this, uh, Navalny is still in a coma, but apparently his condition is improving. So uh, what do we make of this series of events and obviously the Kremlin trying to stop Navalny's transfer to Germany, uh, its unwillingness to investigate these events and, and everything else surrounding the, the Navalny-Putin relationship points to uh, the Kremlin looking responsible or, or at the very least complicit. Navalny has been a thorn in Putin's side for a long time, but I'm thinking we should probably look to more short-term incentives that might be a play that prompted this particular act in this particular moment. I was reading The Economist while on the houseboat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there are certain elements that have changed more recently, like Navalny's smart voting campaign that was gaining momentum. Or maybe it's the protests in Belarus that gave Putin a glimpse into what Navalny could orchestrate if he left that momentum build further. So... I think what's clear from, from this whole story is that if Navalny does make a full recovery, he'll be more dangerous than ever in his ability to mobilize the streets against Putin. So that's why you know, I think people are, are, are watching with such close attention, not only because it's a fascinating story in its own right, but because this could potentially be you know, the, the beginning of a much broader movement than we've seen thus far. I'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> No, well, I think you're you're a little bit more optimistic than I am about this. Uh, he's the Navalny's the latest of somehow found themselves less than completely healthy. Poisonings. Uh, journalists have found themselves falling out of windows on a regular basis in Russia. I think Putin has been very, very diligent in confronting and and eliminating his opposition. I. Not sure Navalny's going to recover from this. And if I were a potential opponent of Putin, this would be discouraging. I, I wouldn't want to be poisoned. So I'm not sure this is going to lead to any kind of shortening of the regime. I do think it shows that Putin senses vulnerability, that he's doing these things in ways that are escalating now. What's interesting is this is at a time where Russia is escalating across the board. So maybe we can think about some of the other things that are going on, see if there's a more of a general pattern. So he, his agents, or somebody poisons the most prominent opposition member at the same time that Russia is getting more and more involved in the political dispute in Belarus. At the same time, we've seen Russian planes confront American planes, both in the skies over the Baltics and in Danish airspace. There's been multiple accounts where B-52 bombers going on ordinary drills that were not in or near Russian airspace have not only been tracked by Russian planes, which is standard procedure, but the Russian planes have actually flown in front of the American planes in ways that are, are dangerous, that they violated sort of the norms of how you play these games. And so you see Russia amping up pressure with the Americans, which is a strange thing to do, given right now that I would think that the Russians would want to keep a low profile so that way they can get their guy, that is Donald Trump, reelected. Yet they're not doing that. They're, they're ramping things up across the world, that there's things going on in a variety of places. And along with that, you see this domestic political thing going on. So 
it's not entirely clear what Putin's game is, but I think he thinks he's got a moment to strike now. And so he's doing it now rather than waiting because that's what a judo master does. Is they, they, they see a weak spot, they attack it. They don't, they're not really thinking about the long game. All right, well, stay tuned. And hopefully by the time that, that we air tomorrow, um, <laughs> <laughs> there won't be some, some dramatic change in, in the situation. Although I do, I do hope that Navalny will, will recover. Up next, you conducted an interview with Phil Lagasse and Thomas Junot, and this is what we'll be hearing next. Can you set this up for us? Sure. Uh, Thomas and Phil wrote an article that examines the gap between folks like us, academics, and folks like the, the Defense Department, the Department of National Defense. Well, that's, that's interesting. So I guess that wraps up for this week. I'll do my R&R segment. And I look forward to talking with you in a couple of weeks. Have a great couple of weeks, and we'll see you all uh, then. Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Phil Agasse, professor at NIPSIA, one of my colleagues, who's also the director of the CDSN's procurement theme, and Thomas Jeannot, who's a professor at Gispia, uh, that is the International Relations School at our adversaries down the river at the University of Ottawa, and he's also co-host of the newest podcast to hit the streets later this fall, a joint venture of the CDSN with the new francophone network, Raz NSA. Do you have a name for that podcast yet? We don't have a name yet. We're thinking about that. Tomas is, is doing the new podcast with Sarah Mir and Martin Boulay, and to show how interrelated the entire defense and security community is, Sarah Miriam is both Thomas's cousin and one of my former students. Are you related to her, Phil? I am not. Although, that said, if you go far enough back in, in Quebec history, I'm sure there's a connection somewhere. So we're talking to Tomas and Phil today because they came out with an article about bridging the gap between Canadian defense and the academic world. And since that is one of the missions of the CDSN and the Battle Rhythm podcast, we thought we'd talk about it. I guess the first question I have for you is, what are the academics' comparative advantage in, in this space? Why should the military folks and the D&D folks listen to us as opposed to defense contractors, retired military folks, think tanks, other, other analysts? I think it depends on the questions being asked. So you may want to ask contractors or defense industry folks about certain types of things, but if you're looking for other types of questions, so if you're looking from an academic point of view, the unfolding international security environment from a much higher level perspective than the policymakers' perspective. Similarly, uh, theories and ideas that have not yet made it into the policy mainstream typically will begin to come out of academia and, and eventually make their way into what policymakers are going to be working with. So that's one key comparative advantage. I would say a second one, and it's an important one from my point of view, is that academics, and I think you, you typify this, Steve, more than anybody else perhaps in Canada, are willing to say things that uh, people <laughs> on the inside aren't willing to say or can't say for a variety of reasons. So academics also have the advantage of being able to question truisms that are really, they're, they're concretized, they're very strong within the defense community, and even if some people don't even fundamentally buy them, you have to subscribe to them or you have to pair with them in order to just work within that environment. Academics, on the other hand, have the luxury of questioning that. So I would say those are the two big comparative advantages. So what are the new theoretical or conceptual ideas that are coming down the, the pike? Uh, one of the examples that we give in the article is uh, GBA+, which 
entered the policy mainstream uh, in this decade, but had obviously been something that had been discussed within the academic community for some time prior. Uh, similarly, as defense grapples with diversity issues and other things of that nature, I suspect that uh, a lot of the academic work that's ha happening in that area now is eventually going to make itself its way into the policy mainstream. So th those would be my, my main comparative advantages. I'd add to that that, you know, the, the job of policymakers, especially when you look at the more senior, more traditional policymakers, is to take multiple inputs and then to put all of that together, like the sausage machine, and then come up with a decision with a policy. And that's massively simplifying, but it's really important to remember that whenever important decisions or policies are made, multiple inputs are taken into consideration, an operational perspective, a financial perspective, a legal perspective, what do our allies think, what, you know, a more administrative perspective, a machinery perspective, and so on. So the issue is, can academics come into that process and be one of those multiple inputs into the, the decision or policy making machine? To be able to do that, as Phil said, they need to have a value added. They need to be able to do something that nobody else does. The legal advice, the financial advice that policymakers get from within the government machinery, nobody else does that. In the case of, of academics, I think Phil touched on some of the key issues. There, there are a few others. For example, in many cases, when you look at it at academics from a regional studies perspective, not all academics do that, but that's, that's a bunch of them, academics travel to other countries where government people are not always able to go. Uh, think about Iran, for, for example. Think even about China and Russia, where it is increasingly difficult for government people to go around and talk to people. In those countries, academics can talk to people that government people don't always have access to, or even when they have access to these people, they may not necessarily talk as much and so on. So if you add all of that up, yes, academics can potentially have a, a value added to fit into that, that multiple input process. The key question, and I mean, we can we can break that down in, in future questions. Do they fulfill that, right? Are they able to actually provide that value added? I guess the, the flip side of this is what are the dangers for academics in particular to hang out with the military, hang out with the government? Are we replicating the military industrial academic complex? Well, we had a meeting last week where Phil raised this. And I, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to whether you guys, how you would think about that now, given this article that you that you wrote, doesn't really look at that side of the equation that much. I'm sort of curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I'd start off by saying I, I don't think that's necessarily something that has to concern all academics. Uh, the, the first thing that we kind of lay out in, in the article is that Canadian defense studies, it has always been, has always sought to be policy relevant and fairly well embedded in the, in the policy community of defense. Now that said, it should always remain somewhat critical, I would argue, of the subject that it's engaging with. Uh, and this is something that all fields have to tackle. Any field that really is is both working within and influencing the field that it's studying is going to face this dilemma, be it policy studies, be it law, or, or any other, is going to have to say, how close do we want to be to that which we're studying? Uh, but in defense context, I think the, the key answer here is just to be aware of the fact, and this is um, something that troubled past D&D engagement efforts with academics. Namely, it is important to both sustain, respect, and recognize the importance of the critical dimension. And those who don't want to be closely involved with the government on defense issues, who don't want to be involved in with uh, the defense industry, who raise very uncomfortable questions, questions that we those that are close to the policy process would rather avoid. So it's simply recognizing, even if that community, to be honest, is not particularly 
friendly to those who are very policy relevant or very close to the fence, they bring something that we have to recognize, have to respect, and that should be cultivated. I guess that would be my, my basic answer, while recognizing that the call to bridge the gap most likely does not apply to them at all, and they would not be interested in, in bridging that gap. So I just hope you know you can have a community of academics who want to bridge the gap, who want to be involved, who want to get have policy important influence, and those who see it as their mission to be the exact opposite, to criticize, to be critical, to analyze, and to keep a very healthy distance from their subject. I agree. And I, I find that there are some risks, but they're easily overstated. And I, I don't view it as a, as a significant problem at all. If anything, I find that the opposite risk of, of being too far from the government and of being irrelevant is far more problematic and far more frequent, uh, especially in Canada, just keeping the, the discussion, at least in the Canadian context. I think that as, as Phil said early in, in answering the first question, in many cases, when government folks want access to external expertise, they actually want to talk to the people who say things that they don't know, who say things that they don't haven't heard before or that they that will be to some extent critical in a way. Uh, calling in people who say what they already know to say what they want to hear, uh, that may happen every now and then, but in many cases, it's less likely to happen simply because they, they don't necessarily need that, that reinforcement. Not to say that it's not a risk, my experience on both sides of the divide is that it's, it's, it's overstated as a risk. I would just add to that also that you, I think academics, and this is probably part of uh, simply the, the nature of the professional culture that you should develop. You always have to be aware of, are you being captured? How close are you to those that you're studying? And as long as you're aware of it, right, as long as you're mindful of the fact that am I too prone to defending government or the military if I'm studying them? And what can I do to create a little bit more distance from that as I am engaging in my academic work? I think the most important thing is to be a little bit self-reflexive about all this. And that should really be part of even what policy schools and networks like yours, Steve, or ours, I should say, that, that are doing this. This is what I raised in the meeting, that important part of the process is trying to have a little bit of self-reflection about this, some meta-discussion about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it, so that even if you are deeply embedded within that wider academic complex, you're aware of it, you're asking yourself questions about it, and you're allowing and recognizing that it exists so that you're not blindsided when people question you about it. Well, I guess this raises something else, which is that one of the common themes or one of the running themes in your paper is that there's a lot more in the space now than there used to be. It used to be a largely a, a military run or or D&D run enterprise where they reached out. And now there's a bunch of different networks out there, a bunch of different efforts. And so one of the, the really good things about your paper is you do a better job than most of explaining who's who in the zoo, that there's this ideas program that's being run out of D&D that's trying to build networks. There's the Minds program, which is being run out of D&D, that's building networks. And then there's, of course, the CDSN. So what's the difference between ideas and minds, if you could explain to our, our, our audience? Well, very, very quickly, ideas uh, is run out of the science and technology shop of D&D. Most of its uh, projects and money is geared towards STEM. That being said, there's a minority of, of its projects that do go to the social and human sciences. 
On the other hand, MINDS, Mobilizing Insights in National Security and Defense, is run by the policy shop in DND. Uh, MINDS is the successor to first the Security and Defense Forum that for decades was the main program, was replaced by the Defense Engagement Program and more recently by MINDS. MINDS has very much a policy focus. It, it does define policy fairly broadly, but it doesn't have the SNT focus that IDEAS has. I think the, the, the main point that we tried to raise in the article in terms of, of the risks of this overcrowding, uh, keeping in mind that the overcrowding is nice. It means that there's a lot of interest. It means there's a lot of money. It means there's a lot of projects. That in itself is a good thing. From our perspective, the, the risk that we raise is that uh, because of this, this overcrowding, given the reality that, that there is a limited talent pool in Canada of people working on security and defense issues, that there will be maybe too much money or at least too much going on for the uh, supply of, of brain power to, to work on these things. That could lead to a certain dilution of some of the networks, some of the projects that would lead to a reduction in quality. And that would be seen in D&D as representing a, a lower bang for the buck in terms of their investment because of this dilution. Yeah, I think the way we at the CDSN try to get around that problem is we try to involve the D&D agencies in the actual research itself. So that way they not only show up when the stuff is being produced, they'll hear what we're saying, but they're actually involved. So that way when they learn the stuff through their research that they're doing with us, they take that back and they bring it to, to the government as opposed to us trying to tell them stuff. So I'll give two examples. There's Phil's workshop on procurement where he went to AD, uh, ADM Matt and brought them in to talk to us about what their problems are. Then as a result, they're a little more engaged in when, when we come back and say, here's what we've learned. Another example is the Civ Mill theme run by JC Boucher. We're running a survey this year and we asked ADMPA if they wanted to give us feedback on our questions. And this gets to one of the Phil's points, which is we can ask questions of the Canadian public that the, that the government cannot ask because that would be seen as information operations or it'd be seen as surveillance or it'd be seen as something that be untoward. Whereas when we're doing it, it's just normal academic stuff. And so we can ask critical questions about awareness of, of government policies and, and how people feel about government policies in ways that D&D can't. But they can be in the room when we're designing the survey to say, well, well, that's a really interesting question. Or here's some things to think about. And so that by having them involved in the actual design of the research, I think we get, get more buy-in. The same was true with our personnel research theme where we, it's co-directed by somebody from the Director General Military Personnel Research and Analysis Group. And so I think there are ways to do it. Uh, what's interesting to me as I observe all these new networks is I think they vary quite widely in how they actually integrate people from D&D and CAF into, the, into their networks into their actual business of doing research. I think that, that that will be an interesting test of hypothesis is which ones ultimately do better and get renewed and make a bigger splash. And my hypothesis is that those actually integrate elements of D&D &D and CAF into that earlier stage of the process will probably thrive better than those who don't. So it's a, it's a, it's a question that we can observe and, and test over the course of the next several years. And just, just to build on that, I think this is another issue that we discussed in the article. Even if you're not directly involving D&D CAF people in your research, Having a liaison with them on a regular basis is important in large part to ensure that there's a good deal of humility on the part of the researcher. So humility, we talking, academics have humility. They, they can be humble. Well, I'm not so sure that's true. Well, I think they it's should. important. No, they they should. It's, I, and this gets back to the credibility issue and all the rest of it. And I think this is why in part what motivated uh, Thomas and I to write the article is, you know, we both kind of sat on both sides of the fence. And although I don't know if we're allowed to, quote Rumsfeld in a good way these days, but I mean, the, you, you have a better appreciation of the known unknowns of what's, what goes into policymaking, right? So as, if, as an outsider kind of looking into government, 
you may be tempted to, you know, assume that they're either ignorant or of certain things or that they, they're just not good at their jobs. That's why you're getting the outcomes that you're getting. When in reality, when you're kind of sitting on the other side of the fence and you see how policy is made or what operational challenges exist or how decision-making works in the government of Canada or whatever it is, it gives you a really different appreciation of what you know and what you don't know and what's in the public domain and what tends not to be in the public domain when decisions are made. And that leads academics, or it should, I hope, uh, lead them to, again, focus on their comparative advantage, right? Which is areas where they kind of are better placed to comment and analyze and not kind of get into the operational, tactical, managerial level stuff where, you know, you can, you're, you're either not providing very good analysis because you don't have all the facts or even worse, you're, you know, putting stuff out there, which is just in, inaccurate and that can have follow-on effects because the easy academic stuff that's out there often is what can get picked up by political staff and make the life of departments and militaries really difficult because they are trying to deal with questions and assumptions on the part of political actors that may not align with reality. One of the, just to wrap up this perspective on it, there was one of our interviewees who really made the point that one of the most important things you can offer to an academic or you know a graduate student who's making their way up is bringing them in and giving them some taste of just how complicated decision-making is in the government of Canada, right? Just how many layers of this, what, how much work just goes into making a decision, right? And how many verifications and checks and challenges that has to go through. And that may be something that people don't appreciate enough, right? So I say humility, maybe what I mean is a little bit more of better information when, when you're doing your work. Humility is just fine. I do think that one of the advantages of programs like ours at the MA level, and actually I think Tomasa's as well, is that our students do get co-op experiences. So that way they do get to see. The challenge is that we really don't have a good model for PhDs to have the PhD students to have the same kind of experience that we have to rush them through our programs very quickly. They don't have the time to get security clearances to then hang out in government for periods of time. Now, on the other, on the flip side, I know that our students, our PhD students, a fair amount of them do have some experience with the military or D&D or CSIS or whatever else before they come to us. Tomas, as you guys develop your own PhD program at the University of Ottawa, first, the, the, the recommendation is always don't because that talk about saturated markets. But if you do, then perhaps as, you, as you're building that from the ground up, you know, build in a co-op component of some kind so that way they get, get that kind of experience. Uh, let me ask you one one last question, uh, which is, you've both worked with the folks in government very closely. What would you say is both the most accurate and least accurate stereotypes they have about academics? Can I actually reverse that question when uh, <laughs> before before answering that? And maybe I'll let Phil answer that one. I'd like to, to uh, talk about the worst stereotype that people in academia have about people in government. Uh, and, and this is a stereotype, so it's not always true looking both ways. A lot of academics vastly underestimate how smart, knowledgeable, and hardworking people in government are. Of course, there's some deadwood in government. Of course, there's some morons working in government. <laughs> but on average, especially when you look at some of the fields that we're interested in, policy, intelligence, operations, most people there are very hardworking, very smart, and very knowledgeable, and very skilled. Uh, and I think academics very much underestimate that. Phil, I'll let you answer the actual question. Uh, biggest stereotypes. I think one of the big ones is, and I think this is true of anybody who's not really familiar with a field of study, right? So 
I, I assume out there there's kind of an oftentimes you'll encounter this that political science means like game theory or IR paradigms from like the late 70s and early 80s and like people's understanding of, of what a field is is very kind of limited to where they are or what they encountered and then they kind of shut down and that's that's all they know about it. Mm -hmm. So you'll get a lot of views of, okay, well, academics are useless because they do X, Y, and Z type of work. You kind of have to tell them, well, what you're describing is one subset of a subset of the field from 30 years ago, right? And similarly, I think the, the other misunderstanding that goes into it, and I, I assume this is typical of most people who are outside of academia, is, and you, you've dealt with this on a number of occasions, Steve, in terms of how you've interacted with Tom Ricks and others <laughs> is this notion that, well, why don't you guys produce relevant work, right? Why can't you on a dime, like I'm giving you a week's notice. Why can't you write me a 3000 word paper on X? And you're kind of saying, well, A, I got other things to do. B, if I'm going to do a good job, I want to do it properly in an academic fashion. I want it to be rigorous. And see, you know, it's, uh, I may not work on that particular subset of an issue. So I think there's there, that generalist tendency that often kind of happens in, in many aspects of government, not all, obviously, there's some that are more specialized, but the assumption that an academic, like a political scientist does all things political science and therefore should be able to pivot fairly quickly into doing different types of work or different types of things. Whereas the academic, when they get that request will be like, well, I don't really work on that or I don't do it that way, or, you know, I, I need to do research before I get there, right? So there's, there's that other flip side of the coin, which is what is the academic? Is it just kind of like a, a researcher gunslinger for hire model? Mm -hmm. And that's not really reality. And I think this also touches on the wider problem of the gap and a little bit what plagued SDF, which is you can't simply assume that academics are going to be able to produce policy relevant timely stuff because that's not a the nature of academic publishing timelines b it's not the incentive structure to get into peer-reviewed journals particularly if you're working on canadian defense it's not as if you're going to get into the highest rank journals in, in the academy doing policy relevant a theoretical stuff on canada it ain't gonna happen right so the incentive structures of academia may not be what they fully recognize or appreciate Thanks to you, Thomas and, and Phil, for helping us understand better why there's some communication problems between the two worlds. Thank you. The theme for this week's R&R is crime. I've been watching a lot of crime stuff lately. I don't know if I've been inspired by the Trump administration or not. But first is Money Heist. Money Heist is a Netflix TV series made by a Spanish company. So it's dubbed. Uh, you don't have to read subtitles to enjoy it. And uh, I guess you could probably get it in the original Spanish if you want. I'm listening to it in English. And it is an interesting heist movie of a, a very sophisticated gang of criminals trying to essentially rip off the... Spain's Royal Mint. And it's complicated and it goes on and on. And I was surprised to find that it's not just four episodes. If you look at the Netflix listing, it says four parts. It's actually thus far four seasons. They may not get out of the mint by the end of the first season. It's not looking likely. And it's got some funny parts in it. It's got some drama. It's been, it's been quite good. The second recommendation is Guns Akimbo. It is an, a movie. It is very 
bloody, gory action movie where Daniel Radcliffe, the former Harry Potter, stars as a guy, basically an online troll, who gets sucked into a fight club type game where he, they, the people who are upset at him making comments of the game attach guns to his hands and make him play the game. And so he can't really use his hands very easily, which creates all kinds of comedic opportunities. But there's also some really good action, some really gory stuff going on, as I said. So if you don't like blood and guts uh, type stuff, then this is not for you. But I found it to be an entertaining distraction. It's kind of like Running Man meets Death Race 2000 meets uh, uh, The Purge, I guess. Finally, a little less bloody is, uh, I, I'm surprised I didn't mention this before, one of my favorite series of books, uh, Robert B. Parker's Spencer novel. Spencer is a detective, a private detective in Boston. Almost every book, he's asked to investigate some modest case, some, something that looks kind of boring, really. And then he gets sucked into something much bigger. And so the character Spencer is a smart ass, so that makes it delightful. I learned in part how to cook by reading the books because often he's cooking himself and he's putting together dishes. And so I kind of figured out how to put together food. And also you get a really good tour of the greater Boston area. So whenever I go back to Boston for a conference or whatever, I feel like I'm coming back to home because all the streets names are very familiar to me. So there was a TV series with Robert Urich and Avery Brooks that, and then there was another TV series with Joe Mantegna. I will not mention a movie that came out this summer uh, with Mark Wahlberg that utterly destroyed the TV, the, the ideas of the, of the book. So ignore the Wahlberg movie and it goes straight to the Spencer books. There's, there were about 45 of them written before Robert B. Parker died and the series continues, uh, although I have not been you know, up to date with that ever since Robert B. Parker died. Anyway, so those are my recommendations for this week. As always, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, be safe, and good luck. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.